Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Towards the end of his memoir, the actor Will Smith, known most recently for the slap heard across the world, but previously known for lots of successful movies, He tells the story of the most difficult interview question that he's ever been asked. Now, he's one of the most successful actors ever, and he and his family are constantly in the limelight. And so, what you may not know, and I haven't actually read the book, I'm reporting from what I've heard, is that he he grew up in a nominally Christian home, and he's pretty open about his kind of spiritual openness But he was surprised one night at the dinner table where his oldest son, Trey, asked him the question, Dad, what do you worship? And he just threw out the answer, well, I worship God, son. And he said, the second question really threw him. He said, Dad, are you sure? And Will Smith said he's done interviews for 35 years, thousands of them, all around the world, 50 different languages at least, and he said of all the thousands of questions he's been asked, this is the two hardest questions he's ever been posed. What do you worship, and are you sure? (laughs) So I want to welcome you this morning in McCungie here and Bethlehem campus joining us online and everyone who's attending online this morning. This is our fourth and final session in our practice of Sabbath. And this morning we're looking at Sabbath as worship. If you're joining us for the first time this week, we are doing this series called Practice the Presence, and it's not so much a sermon series as it is a practice series. And what we're doing for this season as a church is we're pursuing three habits from the life of Jesus that promise to transform our life and experience, open up our experience to the presence of God in our day-to-day life. And so Sabbath is the ancient countercultural practice of setting aside one full day a week to stop, rest, delight, and as we're going to see today, worship. And so it's a habit that resists the deepest cultural forces of every age, but I think especially of our age and all the forces of the modern world that want to disciple us into this nonstop, no rest, constant productivity form of life. But Sabbath, what it does is it opens us up to trust God and enjoy him in a way that actually puts us in tune with his created design. So, We're gathering weekly to learn, to reflect, and practice. And a couple dozen groups have started throughout the church across the Lehigh Valley. A lot of you have joined them. It's at least a third of the church has joined a group now, which is really exciting. And um, I've been hearing conversations from different groups and The first couple weeks were really hard and brought up a lot of the resistance and the challenge of this. 
And just like any habit that you try and build into your life that is transformative in some way, you find out very quickly you get worse before you get better. (laughs) You find out how bad you are at it first, after assuming that you were probably pretty good at it. You find out actually how far away you are from a habit of this thing before you start to grow in it. And so what I've been noticing in the last week or two is a bit of the delight coming out. It's really cool. I've had several testimonies from people who, because they've been slowing down and paying attention to the presence of God with that space, that margin in their daily life, they've actually had kind of divine encounters with people in their daily life that they would have never slowed down to actually pay attention to before. It's really cool. And I I can't tell the stories here, but people, several conversations I've had in this past week of uh, people opening their homes to people that they wouldn't have thought to open their homes to before, people encountering people on the street, and God moving through those simple conversations in a really transformative way. And these are the types of things that you begin to see that as you practice Sabbath, it not only affects that one day, but it affects how you live the six other days of the week. It becomes not only a habit, but a posture in your spirit of restfulness, resting God where you can pay attention and be open to his presence. And I love the way Leonard Sweet says that every bush is burning with the presence of God. Every bush is burning. So I just want to encourage you, if if you've not joined a group yet, you're not too late. We have another two months of practice together. And so you can join one. You can find all the details on our website. And if you've started things and it's difficult, I just want to encourage you to persevere. Because as you carry on, you begin to reap more and more of the benefits. And remember, it takes practice. There are disciplines, okay? So, today we're entering our final Sunday session on Sabbath, and we're looking at what is the most important of all the four aspects that we've been looking at. So, in Sabbath, we stop, we rest. Last week, we looked at delight. But central to all of this, and more important than any of them, is this first point, that Sabbath is ultimately a day of worship. Sabbath is ultimately a day of worship. So, to get into this morning, I want us to turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20. We're going to read kind of a lengthy section here, beginning in verse 5, and and give you a slight bit of context before we read this. Ezekiel was a prophet in uh, ancient Israel during the time of the exile. So this is the, the period of Israel's history where the people were removed from the physical nation of Israel, and they were exiled. They were deported to Babylon. Uh, this was a classic imperial technique of subjugated peoples to It was specifically designed to destroy their sense of nationhood and identity, including their religious and cultural identity. And that is exactly what we see happen for 10 out of the 12 tribes of the people of Israel. They were wiped off the map, completely gone. Not because they were all killed, but because they were assimilated and completely lost their identity, subsumed into these other cultures and people groups. And so, in this passage, we find Ezekiel, he, he was deported along with everybody else as a young man. He's in Babylon during the exile, and he's prophesying to the people. And at the start of this passage, the elders of Israel come to Ezekiel, and they want to inquire of the Lord. 
And so what we get in this passage, it's kind of like, well, God tells Ezekiel basically to retell the history of God's relationship with his people. And so we get this kind of like microcosm of the whole Old Testament in this one chapter. And as we see it, it's, it's telling the story of the Hebrew scriptures from Exodus up until the exile. And what we see, if you read the whole chapter, is this tragic pattern. This over and over repetition of the same pattern. So I'm going to read, we're going to read together just enough of this chapter to, to give us a sense of that pattern and to see how it impacts us and our view of Sabbath. Okay, so we're going to begin in verse 5, and it reads, And say to them, this is the Lord speaking, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. Just notice who's taking the initiative in every single one of those statements. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Let's pause here just to say that last, you know, last week we were looking at delight and we were looking at how God himself is the greatest, most joyful being in all the universe. To know him is the greatest possible delight. That's why he desires for every, all of creation to know him, to love him, to worship him. Because he is the best thing. And so his longing is to set humanity free, to set us free to experience the joy and relationship that we were actually created for which is the life, the love that he has in himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This perfect, self-giving community of love. And so he tells us, he tells the people of Israel in this passage, this is what I'm trying to give you. Put away the lesser things that you're feasting your eyes on. Put them away. Why? Because they're pitiful in comparison to what I'm trying to give you. That's what we were looking at last week. And so... Here's the tragedy of humanity. Beginning in verse 8, it says, But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. And just to say here that to put anything else above God is it's a betrayal. It's a treason against a holy king. And that demands justice. But notice what happens here, okay? So it demands justice, but at verse 9 he says, But I acted for the sake of my own name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I just want to point out here, this brings in the language of holiness. It's actually been woven through everything we've read. The language of holiness. This contrast between the sacred and the profane. God 
acts out of his own holiness. He says, for the sake of my own name, I saved them. So verse 10, I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So I want you to notice there, God is the one who makes Israel holy. God is the one who sanctifies them, which means to make holy, to to set apart as holy. So he sanctifies them and he gives them instructions of how to live in line with his design. And notice the heart that's still there. I want you to live. This is why I'm telling you this. Verse 13, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. And so here we see the pattern coming full circle. And it's not only the story of Israel, but it's ultimately the story of all humanity. And it says, they did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths, they greatly profaned. That's the language of holiness again. And just to remind you, especially if you haven't heard the last few weeks, the Ten Commandments contain the command to remember and observe the Sabbath. Keep it as holy. It's the longest of the Ten Commandments, actually. God is holy. He makes his people holy. And the day set apart for him is a holy Sabbath. And just notice that it has to be kept holy. And it carries on. Then I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I'd brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I'd given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most, precious, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths. And here's where we get the reason why. For their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. And as you, if you read the whole rest of the chapter, it's extremely repetitive. Six times it talks about this pattern. God gives of himself, of love, of generosity. The people rebel. They drive him out of the space that he had opened up for them. And because he's a holy king, that rebellion brings the consequence of death. And so God promises that there will be judgment, and yet he withholds the judgment and gives mercy every single time. And so it's a pattern that repeats six times in this passage, and at the root of it is the very same question that Trey asked Will Smith. What is it that you worship? And are you sure that you worship what you think you worship? (laughs) So we're going to leave it there and get into what does it mean to call Sabbath holy and to say that we worship with the Sabbath? 
So the first thing we have to understand is that what does it mean to be holy? What is holiness? And I've talked on this a year or so ago, but just as a reminder, most of the time, I think in, in, in our culture, when we talk about holiness, the first thing that will come into our mind is right and wrong. Being, it, it's, it's a moral term. A holy person is a righteous person, someone who does the right stuff by God. And so I think when we talk about holiness, most of the time we're thinking about good or bad, all right? And so if you use the word holy or if you describe somebody as holy, to most people, it, you know, it's either like a, a, a joke or it's like a really judgy thing, right? Holier than thou, right? It doesn't have positive connotations. I don't know that anyone in our culture wants to be holy, right? Right? That's why when you, whenever you have advertising for something actually fun, it's usually presented as something sinful. You notice that? A chocolate advert, you know, any, anything that it's any kind of indulgence or fun, it's usually presented as something unholy, <laughs> right? And so, When scripture talks of holiness and God says, be holy for I am holy, we hear that as do the right things, obey me because I'm holy. But I love how John Mark Comer points out in this week's materials, actually in the podcast for this week, he says that's a little bit of a funny way to take it because when you read the Bible, especially when you read like about the tabernacle and the temple, there's, a whole, there's like whole chapters about holy pots, holy pans, holy utensils, right? And I don't think you look at any of your, you know, frying pans. You might have a favorite one, but it's not as if you look at the other ones and say, well, you are unholy. You are morally deficient and evil. Right? It's because we've got, a, we've got a misunderstanding of what holiness actually means. It's not that those things are morally good or evil. I think a much better way to understand uh, what the Bible means by holiness is to think of your grandmother's fine china. Right? Maybe your mother's, right? I, in, in my house growing up, we were missionaries, and, and every time uh, someone would visit, people knew that my mom had a certain set of china that she liked and she collected, right? So year by year, we'd get an extra plate here, an extra cup there, right? A serving spoon here. And over the years, the things built up. And we had a display cabinet, right? A lot of you know what I'm talking about. You have this in your house, right? And those things didn't live in the cupboard or in the drawer. They lived on the display cabinet to be seen and not touched, right? And they, I, I mean, I, I think I remember using them maybe like twice. When somebody really important visited or a really special occasion, you know, you bring out the good stuff. You bring out the fine china. Why? It's set apart. It's special. It's set apart not because it does the job better than any other plate or cup, right? But because it has a specific, special purpose. It's set apart. It's holy. And so, holiness, very simply, it means to be set apart for a special use. That's all it means. It could be set apart for a bad use. 
just as much as a good use. But okay, so as the passage begins, it tells us God chose Israel. God sets them apart as his covenant people. God makes them holy. All right? So they were holy. But just like the fine china, it wasn't, they, they weren't holy because they were better at doing stuff than all the other peoples of the world. Unlike the china, it also tells us that they weren't especially more beautiful than any of the other, you know, peoples or the other cups and plates and pans, right? They were just regular vessels. What made them holy was the fact that God chose them. God set them apart. And so just like that, even something common can become holy. Even something common can become special not because it's special in itself, but because it's linked to someone special, right? This is why the memorabilia industry exists, right? And I, <laughs> you'll laugh at this, but I remember, to give you like a really stupid example, I remember going to an Alicia Keys concert as a teenager, right? And, you know, she's doing her thing, she's dancing, she did all this stuff. And at one point, she wipes her forehead with a towel and throws it on the floor, right? So me as a teenager, big fan, I wait around after the show to ask the crew, hey, yo, can I get that towel? (laughs) I mean, it's literally a sweat rag, right? And yet it was special because of who it belonged to, who it touched. They didn't give it to me, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so, so here's my point in that semi-disgusting story. <laughs> the holiness of God is what makes his people holy. The specialness, the uniqueness of God is what makes his people holy by association. Not because they're special or holier than thou in themselves. The holiness is located in God, and because we're attached to him, that's the only reason any one of us could ever be called holy, right? And so, here's what I'm trying to tell you in relation to this this morning, okay? Every week so far in this series, I've been highlighting this danger that we can so easily fall into as we follow God, as we, you know, do the, the things of the Christian life We can think, and it begins very subtly, I think, we can begin to think, if I do this, if I obey, if I practice these disciplines and read my Bible and turn up to church, you know, no more than 15 minutes late, (laughs) after I work really hard, then one day I will be holy. And the Bible says, no, you've got it the complete opposite way around. When you are in Christ, the moment you are in him, you are holy. You're not holy as a result of something you do. You're holy as a result of who he is and the fact that you are attached to him, that you belong to him. And so God's holy. He chose you. He invited you into a relationship. He took the initiative 
over and over again in this passage. It says, I chose them. I called them. I set them free. And once you're in covenant with him, you are holy. And so the message is, you are holy. Now act like it. (laughs) In Christ. So that's my next point is that in Christ, you are holy. Now act like it. If you belong to him, I don't care what state your life is in. If you belong to Christ, you are holy. You are set apart for him because you belong to him. And every single person that's ever walked the face of the planet was created to be holy in that way because we were made for relationship with God. We were made to walk with the God who makes us holy. And so when you read the Genesis account of the creation, what you see is actually the whole creation is the temple to his holiness. The whole creation is the temple to his glory, which means everything is holy to God. And when you read the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, one of the things that Bible scholars have long pointed out is that in the literary framework of how it's written, God is making a tabernacle. There's a structure. There's a a pattern, a symmetry of formation and then filling. And he, at the end of six days, he's made this temple to himself, which is the whole of the creation. And what goes in the middle of an ancient temple, the image of the God, a statue of the God. And what does God put as the, the crowning piece of his temple of creation, the image of God, which is humanity, male and female, made in his image. And so Instead of, what was interesting, for an ancient person, they would expect a God to make a holy place, a holy mountain, a holy temple. And instead of doing that, God makes a holy day. The whole of the creation is his temple. And rather than one single place being the dwelling place of his presence in the, at this point in the story, he doesn't set apart a place, he sets apart a day. Which is interesting because what that means is it's accessible to everyone in every place at every time. Every seventh day is holy and set apart to God. And so it's not a place, it's a time. And I love something that was, that's in the practice materials for this week. Uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel called the Sabbath, I love this phrase, he said, it, it, the Sabbath is architecture in time architecture in time. He said the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. I'll just quote you from from, uh, John Mark Comer in in the uh, session notes. He says, the reason is because this God, the one true creator God, for him, the entire cosmos is his temple. There is nowhere he is not. So if you want to find this God, you don't need to climb a mountain or travel to a shrine. He's all around you. You just need to set aside the time to come awake and alive to his presence. 
And that's why I shared the testimonies of some of the people who, as they've been intentionally doing that, all of a sudden, they've come alive to the presence of God in conversations, in unexpected people and places. It's not like God wasn't there before. You get that, right? It's not like when we go on missions trips to, you know, to, to the far-flung places of the world that we are, you know, get the chance to do. It's not as if God wasn't there before us. We're catching up to him and coming alive to what he's already doing in the hearts and lives of people around the world. And we get to participate in that. So what we're doing when we Sabbath is we're slowing down, we're resting from this pace of life, this modern kind of pace of life that makes every moment, every person, everything just like every other person, place, and thing. It makes everything common because you never have time to slow down and appreciate the uniqueness of anything. Does your life ever feel like it's just like, you know, the same day after day after day after week after week, and then you blink and it's like, oh, wow, five years went past. (laughs) Or 10 years went past. (laughs) What we're doing in Sabbath is we're slowing down to create space to to savor the uniqueness of what God has made, the people God has made. In other words, the holiness that God's put all around us. And as we open ourselves to the holiness of what God has made, we open ourselves up to the holiness of the creator. And so this is where we come to the question of worship. So all through this series... I've made the statement that a Sabbath, it, it's, it's not just a day off. We stop and we rest, but it's not just a day off. And you might wonder, well, how exactly is it different than a day off? It kind of sounds like what I might do on a day off, <laughs> right? And last week, we were talking about Sabbath being a day for delight, for good food, for good company, for things that enjoy and bring you, you know, Bring a smile to your face. And yet, what I want to tell you today is that a Sabbath is not just a day for self-care. It's not just a spa day. I mean, you can spa day on your Sabbath if you want, but what I want to tell you is it's not only that. How? Okay, so the point here is that Sabbath is not less than a day off or a day of self-care. It's not less than those things. It's more. And I want to get into the more today. So just yesterday, the New York Times ran an opinion piece, and it was called A Skeptical Look at Self-Care. And I'm sure you've noticed our society is, it's not just, you know, Christians that are noticing that, like, modern life is wearing us out, and we're getting tired, and we're getting more and more anxious, We have more and more money and possessions than ever before as a society, and yet we seem to be the least happy. And so everyone's catching on to this. Companies, you know, government making provisions for, you know, for how to counteract this. And so we talk about the need for self-care. We talk about the need for work-life balance. We talk about breathing exercises and mindfulness and meditation we talk about the need for 
renewed community organizations to fight isolation. And I'm for all those things. And what they are is a response to the very kinds of things that we're talking about as we talk about Sabbath. But what they're not is a replacement for Sabbath. What we actually desire, what we're longing for, what we're missing is the rest that Sabbath was always designed to give us. And so this entire self-care industry, it's risen up in response to this situation, and that's a good thing, but I'll just quote you what this opinion piece said. It says, the catch-22 of self-care becoming big business, that's interesting in itself, it says, the catch-22 of self-care becoming big business is that taking time to refuel recharge and reconnect as self-care asks of us ends up feeling just like another chore. The kind that led us to burnout in the first place. <laughs> so you're getting tired of caring for ourselves. Isn't that interesting? So it's an indicator to me that what we desire, what our society desires is what we're talking about in this Sabbath rest. But here's what happens. When Sabbath becomes common, we call it a day off. When a Sabbath of worship becomes common, all it becomes is self-care. And so here's what I want to tell us. (laughs) We're left with this hollow feeling, even as we pursue these things as a society, because They're they're good practices, but if they're not attached to the anchor of where Sabbath comes from, they, they end up leaving us feeling hollow still. The Sabbath is holy, not just because of what we do, but because of who we do it for. It's not just about the activities, it's about the underlying motive and direction that those activities are directed towards. So Sabbath is different. It's uncommon because we stop, we rest, we delight, not for ourselves, but for him. It's a God-oriented day. And the beauty is, and you think, oh, that's selfish, God. (laughs) Everyone's got to give you one day a week. Well, here's the thing. The beauty of this is that because God is the fuel we're made to run on, because we're actually created to be in relationship with him, when we give ourselves entirely to him, we get everything that we desire in return. Because it's in him. And so, as we let go of self and we orient ourselves towards him, the, the, the paradox is we actually get the self-care that we're longing for. Because we're feasting on the actual source of life. Without him, you can eat, but your hunger will not dissipate. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And whoever feeds on me will never be hungry again. I'm the water of life. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. And so the problem, as the passage points out, is that it's not that these things in themselves are bad. It's that we're feasting on lesser things. We are settling for lesser 
things. And, you know, I use the example of the mac and cheese. Uh, sorry, not mac and cheese. The, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to mac and cheese. Talk about like a, you know, non sequitur. <laughs> Talked about the fine china, right? Now imagine you've got the fine china up on the shelf, and you bring it down, and you open up a box of Kraft mac and cheese, <laughs> and eat it off your grandmother's fine china. She's not going to be happy about that, <laughs> right? And, you know, that example, it took me back to my childhood, because, you know, growing up as a missionary kid, you know, any, like, things that were very American were really special to me, right? So Kraft mac and cheese happened to be a very holy food item to me. It was very special. You can't get that anywhere else for legal reasons, you know. <laughs> Literally, like, the dyes are illegal other places, but anyway. Anyway, it was special to me because it was the taste of America, right? It was the taste of my image of what it meant to be American, all right? And so in my mind, Kraft Mac and Cheese was the only genuine mac and cheese. It was set apart. (laughs) And to me, all other mac and cheeses were substitutes, right? They were vain idols. And I remember visiting my aunt nearby here in Whitehall and spent the summer there. And one day I was so excited. She she said, we're going to have mac and cheese tonight, boys. I'm like, yes. Yeah. So I'm picturing Kraft mac and cheese, right? Now imagine my horror (laughs) when we sit down at the table and she removes from the oven this piping hot casserole dish of, you know, fusilli pasta with like golden brown mozzarella and cheddar and thick, rich, you know, flavors. I was utterly disgusted. (laughs) I said, what is this? I thought we were having mac and cheese. And she says, we are. (laughs) Right? And I said, that's not what I want. I want mac and cheese. (laughs) And here's the serious point that I'm trying to make here is that I had feasted my eyes on a particular vision of what I thought was going to make me happy. What I thought was holy. (laughs) And I'd feasted my eyes so much on that substitution that I couldn't recognize the real thing when it was staring me right in the face. Right? And I think this is exactly why it's so important for us to, right now, as our society's reeling with the effects of modern life and, you know, the rise of self-help, which is, it's good stuff, but here's the thing, we can't settle for the miniature substitutes, We have to rediscover the Sabbath rest that God designed for us. And so, this is where we're talking about worship. It's God-oriented as we Sabbath. And when we hear of worship, we think of, you know, you probably firstly think of the, the portion of the service where we sing together, and that is an expression of our gratitude, our praise, and that is a form of worship. But I think what happens is a lot of times we think of worship as something that is intended for us. So it's kind of like, well, how was worship this morning? Oh, it was great. 
how was worship this morning? Eh, I didn't really get much out of it. And I have a friend who says, that's good, because you weren't the one being worshipped. <laughs> Why are you expecting to get something out of it? <laughs> and I'm being a little facetious, but here's the thing. Worship is not about something we get. It's about something we give. We come to church not to get something as we worship together, but we come to worship together, which means to give ourselves to God because he's worthy. Worship is giving yourself to something in order to get that something. Okay, that's just a really broad definition of worship. Worship is giving yourself to something in order to have it. (laughs) And I say this often, and I'm just going to keep repeating it. Everybody worships. Every person gives their life to someone or something for the sake of getting that thing because they think it's what's going to make them happy. For the hope that if they get that thing, then they'll finally find what they're looking for, they'll finally be fulfilled, they'll finally be justified for their existence. One of my favorite quotes on worship is by a secular author and social critic named David Foster Wallace. He gave a famous commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, and he said this. Just just listen to this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that it's not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day. That could almost be a commentary on Ezekiel 20. Sabbath is a day of worship. It's a day where we slow down, we resist the idols that seek to shape us, that seek to conform us to their image, and we make space to be with the real thing. It's him. It's him. It's a day to declare what I ultimately need is not to do one more thing, it's not to earn one more thing, it's not to achieve one more thing in order to be happy, in order to justify my life to the world, What I ultimately need is God. Even if I don't feel it, even if I don't have a taste for it, I'm training my soul in that truth. And like the passage, I recognize that I'm caught in this pattern of wrong worship 
I'm caught in this pattern of disordered desires, and I need the God who time after time has intervened to save me. That is my need. The God that even though I rebelled, even though I ran away, even though I've made my life feasting on the craft TV dinner substitute gods, continued to chase me, continued to save me. And instead of suffering the judgment that was actually my due for my rebellion, he offered me mercy over and over again. Over and over again. Not because of my holiness, but because of his. And now, when I covenant with him, when I get into relationship with him, I'm made holy not because of me, but because of him. And so we Sabbath, we set apart a day for him to slow down, to rest, to delight our senses in order to remind ourselves that he is our true food. He is our true desire. To declare that he is our true place of rest, that he is our true delight. And so we don't come to Sabbath to get something. We come to give something and get everything in return. Sabbath is a day for worship. And without that, without that foundation, all it becomes is a day off. All it becomes is self-care. It's not less than those things. It's just so much more. And so, when we keep the time as holy, when we make ourselves present to his presence, we're renewed. We're restored. And we practice in the here and now, actually, what we will enjoy forever and ever when we inhabit his presence with no block, no filter. We get to practice that now. And so, every week we've got practices, we've got exercises, you've got homework, basically, to put this stuff into action. And each week builds on one another, so all the stuff that you've started, continue that. And there's two practices for this morning. The first is practice what's called fixed hour prayer. This can be just like a light edition of this. You know, the monks used to do like seven times a day. There's fixed hour prayer. Try two times. If you pray at night before you go to bed, try praying in the morning also when you wake up. Something I've tried to institute after reading that Dietrich Bonhoeffer did this, he said, the first and the last word of the day belong to God. First thing I'm going to do is hear from God in scripture before I look at my phone, before I do anything else. And the last thing I'm going to do is hear from God in scripture or prayer. But the first and the last day, that's fixed hour prayer. You can go three times, work it into your lunch break. It's a convenient time to work that in. But there's different ways you can do that. You could listen to worship music. You could take a walk and talk to God. But try and practice a fixed hour prayer. All right, and then secondly, identify two to three practices by which you enjoy God and do them. All right, so we've all got to find out the different ways that we just come alive in God. It might be singing for you. It might be being in nature. It might be reading, you know, theology or something that just excites your, your heart. But pick two or three things that you enjoy in God and do them. And if you are trying to figure out, well, how do I, this might look like work, what I'm trying to do 
as rest to someone else that might be work. Well, there's, you can look through the prism of the things that we've been looking at these past four weeks. So you can ask, you know, is this, am I stopping? Is this ceasing what I usually do on a work day? So I, I like the one practice that says, if you work with your uh, brain during the week a lot, you know, with, with your, if you're doing like mind work a lot, do something with your hands on your day off. And a lot of people find that restful, right? Secondly, is it restful? Does it refill my soul with new energy, emotionally, physically, spiritually? So watching TV, it might be restful in one sense to your body, but does afterwards, how do you feel? Do you feel filled up emotionally? Are you filled up with beauty or is it just kind of like, oh, another brain cell dead? Delight, does I, do I find myself naturally happy and grateful to God as a result of this activity? That's a good indicator. And lastly, worship. Do I find myself coming alive to the wonder and bursting into praise as a result of this? All right? So you get all that stuff. I'm just quoting from the, the practice guide so you can go, and there's a lot more detail to help you out there. But this is how we practice his presence through Sabbath. We stop, we rest, we delight, and we worship. So why don't we bring our message time to a close here and just pray and just bring this last week of Sabbath practice and bring it before him. And I want to encourage you, like, the point of this is not just to do it for four weeks and stop. The point is to gather, the point is to gather a habit that you work into the fabric of your life. So Father God, we just ask you for your grace right now as we are intentionally pursuing this practice as a community. Lord, that these four weeks, as good and challenging and fruitful as they've been so far, Lord, that they would just be the beginning. That as we seek you in Sabbath rest, Lord God, that you would meet us. You begin to release our souls from the burdensome weight that we've, we've picked up along the way. Lord, help us to learn rest in you, delight in you as we worship you. So Holy Spirit, you've already set us apart for the Father through Jesus. Now would you work, help us to work that out into our behavior, our patterns of thinking, our patterns of acting. That we would be sanctified in our actions as much as we are in our spirit. So we give you the remaining weeks of our practices, we ask you to bring the fruit as we're faithful to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.